You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to our first ever episode of Ear to the Ground. My name is Ben Eames and I'm joined with my co-host Aileen Sweeney. Hello and we are super delighted to have our first ever guest Nicholas Olsen. Nick is a Welsh composer who is up and coming on the Scottish music scene. He's worked with a number of ensembles including the RSNO, BBC SSO, the SAFA Ensemble, Ensemble Modern and many, many, many more. Hello Nick, it's great to have you on the show. Hi Aileen, hi Ben. So, so nice to have a chat with you today. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So we noticed that you've been pretty busy over lockdown. You've written a grand total of 19 miniatures the last time I counted, is that correct? (laughs) That's about right at the moment, yes. (laughs) Ever-expanding list. So you've written 19 uh, little miniatures for your From Home series. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and how it came around? Yeah, so the From Home series is a collection of short pieces. It's almost like a a little diary, I suppose, or a chronicle of my thoughts uh, and feelings throughout the kind of COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Initially, I thought it would just be throughout the lockdown period at the kind of during March. Uh, but it became a, a you know a much bigger project than that, and you know I reached out to people on on Facebook and I put out a kind of a is anyone interested in playing something during this kind of time when we were all in isolation? And I was actually really amazed by how many people uh, were keen to express themselves through music during a time where we weren't able to to talk to normal audiences and and with each other. And so it kind of grew from that kind of idea of community uh, and spirit within the arts community uh, during what is a really tough time for everyone. Yeah, I remember seeing on Facebook you put the call out and then like... A couple of hours later, there were just like floods of comments all down it. Like everyone would be like, I want a piece. I want a piece. <laughs> um, so it was a pretty, pretty swift reception. You must have been chuffed. <laughs> I, I really chuffed. And actually, I've still got a half a page full of people who are still interested in, in pieces. And even a few weeks ago, I had someone message me who was uh, part of the original gang, I suppose, who are interested in pieces. And they said, if you're still writing, I'd really love to have one. Excellent. I'm interested to know if the lockdown circumstances had an overall effect on the turnaround of these pieces. Do you know what? It's it's really hard to know because every piece is so different, and you guys know that as well. Is that, you know when you're when you're learning music to play or when you're writing it, uh, every piece has different challenges. Uh, and so when you think actually this piece is going to be really straightforward, I've got this really great idea, and then suddenly you're staring at a blank piece of paper a week and a half later. Uh, <laughs> so in some in some pieces, yeah, it was really quick, and I had had them to players, you know, three or four days. In others, it was three four weeks, and uh, and I think that's okay because it also represents to me that kind of it was a struggle for people to get through. Do you think the writing process for these pieces has been quite therapeutic? Yeah, I think therapeutic's a really nice word, actually, Ben. And when you're writing, uh, 
we have different reasons to write different pieces. And I think that's okay. Uh, at the beginning, you know, a lot of it was about self-reflection and, and figuring out what could be done as, as a composer in a time when we weren't able to do live music. And, you know, we will have all seen on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, etc., uh, loads of people putting out content of kind of recordings of previous performances or performances in their living room. And as a composer, I felt like I had something that I could add to that, but not just something of saying my own things, but a way that I could bring other people uh, and kind of talk about what they wanted to talk about too. And so in the pieces, you know, it was a discussion with the player about how are you feeling at the moment and what are you kind of, what are you experiencing in lockdown? And we tried to build those into some of the pieces. I'm just a little curious um, writing solo pieces can be deceptively difficult. I think there's a bit of a misconception that the less instruments you have, the easier it is. And you were obviously consistently writing for solo instruments. Was there any that you found particularly difficult? Yeah, uh, Aileen, you're right. Solo pieces aren't, as, aren't any easier than writing uh, kind of a piece for large ensemble. And I think it's that's down to the fact that when you're working with a player so closely, you have a relationship with both the player and the music. And how you you respond to those two different things as a composer is actually really something you don't get when you're writing an orchestral piece. It's impossible with an orchestral piece to, to know every 100, and 100 players in the orchestra and input something from each of those players into the pieces. Uh, but with a solo piece, you get to do that and you get to have that chance to, to work with them. In terms of your question, is anything harder to write than others? It, it was really fun to write a lot of them. Uh, I've always found working with accordion, uh, your instrument in particular there, Aileen, you know, an interesting challenge uh, because it's so nuanced, isn't it? If you're not an accordionist walking into the world of accordion, there are so many things you can trip up on, so many things that you think think should work that really don't and uh, so that's always a challenge to come across an accordionist and I had two who were really keen to to work with me in the project so that in itself was a, a double challenge I suppose. Well I guess I mean you've become something of a expert accordion composer now you've what got three pieces that have accordion? Yeah three three pieces I think I blame Gordon McPherson for that <laughs> uh, so Gordon obviously is an accordionist so I definitely think he he has a hand in, in who I can blame for my accordion writing. But weirdly, when you were studying with Gordon, you didn't write um, for accordion, or am I making that up? No, you're not making that up. He told me not to. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I joke, I joke. Um, he actually said, now's the time to write something for accordion because I can, I can tell you what, what works and what doesn't. And I think in some ways, when you're when you're able to do something like that you you desperately don't want to <laughs> although that being said I remember uh hearing uh you do a piece of his called Stramash which is you know this incredible kind of uh wonderful depiction of this Kaylee band kind of collapsing in front of your eyes uh and that's the kind of accordion writing that I was always scared of scared of doing and scared of being kind of that composer that didn't quite know how to write for accordion. Even though Gordon um is a accordionist, that piece was an absolute roast. I have never played anything as difficult as that. Oh my goodness, absolute roast. Um 
but maybe now would be a nice time to hear a solo accordion piece from the From Home series. This one is called Spare Room. Am I right, Nick? Yeah, you're right. So this is The Spare Room and it's played by uh, Valerie Barr. You know, this was one of the early uh, pieces in the From Home series and uh, I just kind of moved some, well, moved the office in this back room around a bit to try and get some different uses of space. Uh, and so it was all kind of about that journey of trying to figure out when you're at home all the time, how you compartmentalise what you do in work uh, and how you live in the rest of the space when you're not able to, to go outside in the same way that you normally would. Wow, that was lovely, Nick. Yeah, what a gorgeous piece. I think you've utilised the key feature of the accordion, which is like the sustain. Yeah, I, I, thank you so much. I'm so glad you, you like it. And um, you're, you're right, you know, this sustain is something that's pretty unique, obviously, to, to accordion. Um, obviously, there are bowed strings that do it as well. But in terms of length of note value that you can get is is massive uh, but also the swell and subtle changes in timbre that you can create with an accordion just with a slight change of speed of moving the bellows or you know just the you know half depressing a, a, a key slightly or, or slowly depressing rather than quickly and you get these kind of breathy sounds at the beginning of a, a note when they sound uh, I think that's really beautiful uh, and so you know when I'm writing these kind of chordal moments it's about trying to find those those narratives I suppose that come out of the instrument rather than out of the writing um, the spare room feel is about this kind of not sure about how all of the different things fit within 
the place where we were, you know, and we were all at home. And I was trying to work out exactly how you compartmentalise uh, composition, compartmentalise other work that I do, teaching, etc, etc, and finding different spaces. And it was about that idea of space and place and that kind of breadth of space and place that I wanted between those activities uh, that was that I was trying to achieve with that, uh, rather than necessarily, you know, thinking, oh, here's a spare room, I'm going to write a, a tune about it being a nice spare room. Do you find that, like, thinking about acoustics and space has been particularly important to this project? Yeah, it actually really is. And, you know, um, I've, I've done a bit of research on these pieces since uh, for a paper I gave in, in Northumbria, obviously virtually in Northumbria, because we, we weren't allowed to leave our house still. But, um, and one of the bits of feedback that I got from, from performers was that one of the things they really liked seeing with other people's performances was where people lived and knowing that people still existed and that artists were still doing things. And so you're, you're absolutely right, both acoustically, you know, thinking about what works in a, a dry front room or a dry bedroom isn't the same thing as what works in a concert hall. You know, uh, the accordions, the, the, you know, the antithesis of this argument where actually you can still get really beautiful sustained notes on an accordion uh, at home because that's how the instrument produces sound. But you can't rely on silence and a, a kind of a three, four bars rest and let sound evaporate into an audience like you might in a concert hall setting. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I, th I think that was an important kind of part of the writing uh, and hopefully something that people kind of felt could allow them to, to listen to the project with those ears on as well. Many of the pieces from the From Home series have very evocative titles uh, referencing various social and political aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how you marry your music with its theme. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I'll start with with this is that for me, titles are really important. Um, and the reason I say that is it's because it's the first thing that an audience hears. And, and I use the word hears rather than reads, because I think when you, you read an evocative title, you actually hear it. You know, there's a difference in, in how you, you read certain words. Some are very bright and colourful. Some are really dark and sombre. Uh, and so that's kind of the first thing is so that some of these titles are purposefully evocative. And, you know, they're supposed to make you immediately feel something. For example, ventilator, which has kind of a, a real attack to it, ventilator, and kind of a, a real suddenness and a starkness to it uh, and obviously it has so much uh, weight and depth to it in the midst of a, a, a pandemic so that's the first thing and th the other is then how do you how do you kind of marry that up with the music that you're listening to well that that is a harder question to answer because there's so many different things that we do as composers some are really um, and, and actually this is what I do quite a lot in my kind of thinking before I'm writing some are really clear-cut so in Ventilator, that's a piece for accordion. And there's lots of air breath sounds. Uh, and they're kind of produced, you know, going up and down, as you might a mechanical ventilator on a, on a hospital ward with these kind of moments of uh, life or stillness kind of, kind of coming out of them and, and contrasting between them. Uh, so in some ways like that. Uh, in others, it's about kind of finding the emotive response, the emotional response, and alluding to the title or using the title to create the, the musical response. I suppose it's like rhetoric uh, or when you're kind of considering those things uh, in, in reading, for example. 
So, you know, the other examples you pulled out there, uh, daily briefing uh, is this really fast, meticulous kind of um, uh, constant nattering. And that's kind of how it felt to me. It was this kind of uh, everyday thing that we kept getting ramped up and ramped up and ramped up and more and more information. And it kind of became an overload of everything on top of one another. Uh, and, you know, we couldn't get away from this daily briefing. Uh, and so those kind of different things uh, all kind of form different pieces for me. Yeah, I think it, especially in daily briefing, you can you can really hear that sound of of, of repetition. I think is quite a, quite a, a sort of obvious um, musical thing that you can spot in that piece. That was Daily Briefing performed by Richard Schofield on tenor saxophone. Richard's so yeah. great. It's really, really good. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, another thing I love about that video is the ironing board just propped in the background <laughs> as if he's literally just like put his ironing down and decided to sort of, <laughs> you know, right, I'll record that now. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> so you've already said that you've got some more sort of up your sleeve for the From Home series. Where can people, where can people find these? So the From Home series is all being kind of released on social media, uh, but it's also you can find the whole series on uh, my website under the From Home page. Um, obviously, it, they're also all on YouTube uh, and under a From Home playlist. So if you really want, you can go and listen to number one all the way through to, to where we are at the moment. And there are still a few from the series being recorded. And I think probably a few more to come because unfortunately, I don't think the pandemic is going to end tomorrow. So... You are currently studying a PhD at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire in referential music. For listeners who haven't heard this term before, uh, could you tell us a wee bit more about this area of music and how it sort of relates to your own compositions? Yeah, so my PhD is looking at, uh, as you say, reference and referential music. And, and basically that's a fancy way of saying music that's informed or alludes to non-musical stuff. Uh, and that stuff could be as simple as uh, uh, we're doing this podcast and writing a, a piece about this podcast recording. You totally do that. Um, and, the <laughs> and the hilarity that ensues, right? Uh, or it could be um, as 
you know, these pieces are all, these kind of from home pieces are all informed by COVID-19. Um, reference takes many different forms, everything from quotation through to allusion to um, representation to program music. Uh, and so people are probably really quite familiar with the the output of referential music, even if it's not necessarily boxed up in that way. And how did you become interested in this particular area so much so that you wanted to do a whole PhD in it? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it started with a piece I wrote uh, during my undergrad called Numb, which was written for the Ensemble Moderne, which is a, a piece about how much I hate the dentist. And I don't hate many things, but I do really really hate the dentist. I'm petrified, terrified of the dentist. So I wrote this piece called Numb, which was almost a literal translation of everything dentistry. Uh, and so, you know, there are kind of almost drill-like sounds and crashes and uh, all of this kind of emotion that's built up. And so ever since that piece, I was interested in how I can put a real personal kind of insight into the compositional process. Uh, and then into the pieces that I was writing. I remember the the premiere of that piece. That was at Plug at the RCS. That was a good few years ago. I'm trying to remember remember when, 20-something. But it was intense. <laughs> I was like, man, he hates the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> so it was 2017, I think. And, you know, um, I, I'm glad you found it intense because that was you sharing my pain. <laughs> Uh, I remember I was sat in the concert hall and there were these audience members just a few rows in front of me. And there was, a you know, in between pieces, people moving things around. Uh, and my piece starts with this uh, triple F, incredibly loud, cymbal crash, loud, very spaced out, high chord, low notes, that the whole thing. Uh, and honestly, I've never seen someone jump <laughs> so much. You know, this massive uh, smash of a bass drum and a cymbal crash. And honestly, I thought they were going to kind of, I, I don't know, fall <laughs> over or something from kind of the, from, from the loud noise. But yeah, I, thanks very much. I was just going to say, actually, it's funny because we've kind of touched upon it, but when you write something and you're using reference um, in your composition, um, is that something that you really, you're hoping that the listener follows you with? Or are you quite happy for listeners to like interpret it in their own way? It's a really good question whether or not I want the audience to understand yeah. the reference. Um, and I think the answer is if people get it, that's great. If they don't, I, I really don't mind. You know, that's not it's not something that should be a precursor to someone listening to my music. I hope that people can listen to it and enjoy it or not enjoy it uh, for, for, for many different reasons. And, you know, it's also, you know, this idea of not enjoying things is something I'm also really quite excited by. I think it's really important that people don't like all music that they listen to. Um, I just ask that people tell me why they don't like something. So if you ever see me at a concert and I said, did you like my piece? You can say no, as long as you can tell me why you didn't like it. And I think that's the same with reference. You know, if you don't get it, that's fine. But I'd be interested to know why not, because that, that helps inform my writing going forward as well. So I think you've kind of answered this, but um, is there any um, specific pieces that you could sort of point people towards um, that is a, a sort of good example of referential music? And if, uh, you've spoke about none, but is there any other pieces that you think would be a good sort of insight into this writing approach? 
So another one of the pieces that you, 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 know, you could have a listen to if you're interested is a, a piece I uh, wrote last year for an ensemble called uh, De Capo Alba on the Adopt-a-Composer scheme. Uh, and that's a piece called Three Carriages. And, and you know, that's a, a truly referential piece about trains and Scotland. Uh, and it was, again, one of these really collaborative pieces between ensemble musicians. You know, there's elements of uh, folk music thrown in there, um, elements of pure depiction of trains on train tracks. So, yeah, that's another a good example of a, a reference piece of mine. Travel seems to be, or transportation seems to be quite a key theme in your, in your pieces. You've got one about trains, you've got a piece about planes. <laughs> you seem to like... You seem to like transport. Is there any? Is there any um, other vehicles that are <laughs> coming up soon? In the works. I do. I do really like uh, trains, planes, automobiles, the whole lot. You know, and uh, it's one of these things that definitely informs lots of my pieces. I've got a piece called Cloud Mine that's about flying. You know, it, it's just something I really love, uh, and you know, travel is something everyone loves, but often people don't love the actual element of travelling. They really like the being away on holiday. For me, I, I really enjoy that element of travelling as well. I love going through airports. I love being on the plane. I love going to a new train station and finding your way out. You know, I remember the first time going down to Birmingham. I had no idea how to get out of Birmingham New Street. If you've never been there, it's absolute maze. So I ended up just walking around the station. I really enjoyed it, really. I think you're in the minority, but... <laughs> If you'd like to listen to Three Carriages, you can find that on my website as well, you know, links to, to SoundCloud pages and things like that. So, yeah, let's, let's go back um, to the beginning of your musical life um, and just talk about the sort of things that made you want to be a composer or what, what, what was the inspiration for, for becoming a composer? You know, that's a really brilliant question because there's no right or wrong answer to what's uh, the right way to become a composer. And that's something people have asked me before. You know, this actually, for me, kind of swings back around to this idea of reference in music. Um, I, before I became a composer, I was desperate, and I mean absolutely desperate, to be a speechwriter. I wanted to go and write political speeches. I wanted to be a Sam Seaborn or a Josh Lynham from the, from the West Wing. Um, and so I always kind of see composition and music making as a, as a way for me to merge that idea of speech writing and politics into musical forms. So I suppose how I became a composer is stuff like that, you know, this idea of thinking about uh, communication and narrative. I suppose that's the type of answer you might give to explain yourself as a composer. But it's also that I also had brilliantly um, inspiring teachers as well. You know, I went to uh, a school where I had a teacher, Chris, who just gave me the space and the room and the energy and commitment to, to write music. And when you come across uh, teachers and uh, fellow music makers like that, then it's hard to, hard to put the pen down. It's hard to stop writing. You know, I can remember, though, uh, a really great concert that I went to that really just... that light bulb moment of, I have to go and do something in music... Um, and it was the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, and they played the Dutier's Labre de Sauger, uh, which is a, a violin concerto. Um, and it's just full of beautiful, tumbral moments, textual kind of variety that I'd never heard before. And it's, it's so... It just took my breath away. I was sat in this concert hall, and I had... Um, all of these images flying around in, in my brain. And so those three things I can pinpoint as, as becoming a composer, those three things were the elements. Was there any sort of pieces or, or composers that were especially 
um, important to you sort of in your development as a composer? Uh, uh, pieces that are really important, the, the Dutier that I just mentioned, because it was so uh, kind of, uh, it was that kind of novel thing that I'd not heard before. Um, there are pieces that I think are important that I heard, uh, that I experienced. Uh, so, for example, Plis à l'ampli by Boulez. I think that was really important that I experienced that. Um, I'm not sure I'd say it's one of my favourite pieces. The first chord is brilliant. Uh, but I'm not sure sitting through all of it <laughs> is particularly on my to-do list anytime soon again. Um, there are so many. And what I think is important is that we, we put everything that we hear, everything that we listen to, into our musical language. We don't stop with one genre or style or one piece. Um, you know, I listened uh, when I was growing up to quite a lot of pop music, uh, rock music. And uh, when I was 16, I listened to loads of Calvin Harris and... You know, it's a really strange, eclectic mix of, of music that I've heard and kind of experienced. Um, so it's just about finding stuff, listening to it, seeing if you like it. If you like it, why? And if you don't, why not? This is just a kind of a bit of a wild card question, but is there a piece that you wish you had been the composer of? I think there are two answers that I can give you for this. The first is that probably my favourite piece of all time if I had to put one thing that I could go onto an island with a copy of the score and all the recordings ever made of it and just exist in that place, it would be the Ravel Piano Concerto in G Major. So I would, of course, I would, of course, love to have written that. Um, that being said, there, there are lots of other pieces that I, I desperately wish I'd had the idea to write. So, you know, one example that I can think of, uh, there's a composer... A uh, friend of mine called Ninfair Crutwell-Reed, uh, she wrote this amazing piece for uh, it's, it's three etudes for piano and flower pots. And it is the most beautiful uh, kind of five minutes that you'll ever hear. You know, it's breathtakingly good. And I, of course, wish I had ideas like, you know, going into a garden centre, picking up flower pots uh, and thinking about how musical they are. So, yeah, there are two answers there, I suppose. The, the pragmatic one and the I wish I'd been better at, at thinking about ideas one. <laughs> uh, that piece that you're you're talking about for the for the flower pots, um, it definitely everyone should go and check that out. I think we'll give a link to it. Um, oh. That was for the the Safa. Um, yeah, composing for it, just incredible. Um, you know, and yeah, I can't I can't tell you how much I think that piece is is incredible. You know, I, it's interesting. It's one of these pieces that I play every year now to my junior students at the RCS in our musicianship classes. Uh, I always play it because I'm always interested to know, for them to guess what instrument it is. Uh, and, you know, this kind of as a listening exercise. Obviously, no one guesses flower pots. Although, if there's anyone listening who's in one of my junior's classes, I haven't played it yet this year. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that will be coming up soon. So have you got any top tips for young musicians or composers that are wanting to get started or taking their composition skills further? Yeah, the, the, the biggest thing is um, do it. You know, write as much <laughs> as you possibly can. Um, and if you've got any access to any musicians at all, doesn't matter if they're you know, uh, the most professional musicians in the world, you know, Nicola Benedetti, 
or it could be that your brother, sister, mum, dad, friend plays a little bit of piano and you just want them to, to play something. Uh, hearing as much live music as you can, hearing as much recorded music as you can. Um, but yeah, the, the big thing is do it. Get a piece of manuscript, get a pen, pencil, uh, and just write. Do you, do you have a sketchbook? <laughs> just I, I do, yeah. I've got a few. Um, I... I, I Ah <laughs> oh, well, I do. Although I did go and get it, and then realised it's not video, so people aren't going to be able to see this. But yeah, I have yeah. a sketchbook. It's right here. Um, if I flick the pages, maybe it'll make a satisfying sound. <laughs> That's the sound of Nick's brain. <laughs> do you write a lot of stuff using pen and paper first, before you would maybe go to Sibelius or something? Yeah, I always sketch things first in pencil at the piano. So, um, you know, whether it's just some chords that I like, whether it's a melodic idea, um, whether it's a title, you know, I, lots of these are just random words thrown into things. My shorthand, though, is, is really, it, it, it's very shorthand. You know, often there's no meter, no kind of, uh, kind of bar lines or anything. You can see, you know, in this example, there's just one, two, three, four, five, different cells of ideas. Um, how, how formed would your sketches be before you, you would take it to the computer? Um, they don't have to be that formed. Uh, gen generally, if they're on paper, I know what they need to sound like in the piece. And so the, the putting it on paper is more of a kind of a, a remember that this is an idea. So here you've just got... Da -dee -a -da 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 -da, which is just, you know some notes right but in the piece that becomes an elongated melodic line becomes the idea it becomes the melody um you know also just having rhythms so eight eight quavers doesn't look like much but if you do a g sharp for eight quavers that suddenly becomes a cell of ideas and a, an idea and a motif that you you then use for something i've also got lots of ideas in here that i haven't used yet uh, which I think is really quite important. You know, don't throw anything out um, because you, you never know when it will come in handy. I also have in this book the opening of La Mer uh, in short form because I just thought I should do that at some point. So there's, uh, you can see it here, some chords from La Mer, which I at some point plan on stealing. <laughs> uh, so. I remember being in the the Weatherspoons at George Square with you in first or second year and you had an idea and you sang it into your phone. So even on a Saturday night out on town, you, we just can't peel you away from your composition. You're like Still working. In, in the spoons singing away. Like, you know, there's not there's no stopping you. <laughs> you know, that that's really, you know, that is another way that I write. And I still do that. Um, you know, if I've got an idea and I'm out, I just sing it into my phone or... You know, I desperately hope that I don't forget it by the time I get home. You know, e equally, and I, I'll always... I've not used this yet, so uh, I, but I plan on using it at some point. I had a washing machine that was about to break, and it, when it did a spin cycle, it made this most incredible rhythm, and it was so awesome. Uh, so I just recorded the washing machine on a spin cycle, <laughs> and at some point I'm going to just use that rhythm in something because it's, you know, any of these things that I experience that are kind of inherently musical, I think, why not? You know, they're, they're things that 
obviously I didn't make the rhythm, the washing machine did, but, it, you know, the using it in a, a compositional context, that's the act of composition. And don't be afraid, you know, going back to this idea of what can young composers and musicians do, don't be afraid to, to take those kind of uh, weird steps, you know. Don't be afraid to record your washing machine or sing into your phone. Um, people will think you're silly, but so what? So what? If you, if you get the piece down and you get something written, then that's great. Could you tell us a little bit about what is coming up next for you? Um, obviously, the pandemic doesn't seem to be going away, but is there anything that you'd like us to sort of plug for you or anything you'd want to, you know, share with the world <laughs> before we finish? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously it's... Uh, what's happening in the world at the moment means that there are so many artists, composers, musicians uh, without work. Uh, I suppose I'm really lucky that I've, I had some work before that's kind of been pushed back into this, into this place. So um, there's a piece that the Glasgow Barons are going to be doing at some point called Drift, which is coming up soon. Um, a kind of a commission that came out of the pandemic, which is there for Skipton Camerata, working with a writer, uh, called Kamal Khan, and uh, there's a piece called The Anti-Masker, which is, you know, talking about rhetoric and reference. You know, it couldn't be more kind of politically charged than that, you know, The Anti-Masker. Uh, so that's being recorded soon, hopefully, for online release. Um, and there is a piece that's being done later this month in Germany that I can't get to, unfortunately, which is called The Ghost Light, uh, which Saar Berger, who's a horn player, uh, is performing. So those are a few things I've got coming up. But after that, you know, I, I will be... We'll be looking for new opportunities, looking for fun things to do. Obviously, I'll get writing again on the From Homes, I think, um, and, and music for, for PhD research as well. Excellent. Fantastic. Cool. Well, to play you off, we're going to hear a wee bit of your piece, Comfortable Unknown, which is for accordion and violin. Can you tell us a wee bit about the piece before we finish up? Yeah, of course. So this is uh, Comfortable Unknown, and it's here performed by Andrea Gajic and Georgie Gajic. It was a piece I wrote for those two based on a quote by Professor Brian Cox about kind of the things that uh, are out there that we just want to explore and how exciting it is that we can explore those those bits and pieces. And uh, the recording you'll, you'll hear uh, was actually recorded at home uh, during the lockdown period as well. So this is Comfortable Unknown by Georgie and Andrea Gajic. Thank you. 